Uh, as we begin this morning, I actually uh, wanted to do a bit of a demonstration, and I need a volunteer from the audience. Who's busting to volunteer? <laughs> I've got three so far. Uh, is there someone younger, maybe? Oh, uh, not meaning to be ageist, but, you know, marshmallows are a thing that young people do enjoy. If you're allergic to marshmallows, you don't want to volunteer. I see some people volunteering other people. Oh, right at the front here. Sorry, I don't know your name, but yeah, why don't you come up here and you participate in this. What's your name? Jude. Jed. Jude. 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 Okay, good to see you, Jude. Do you like pink ones or, or white ones? You like pink? Much better flavor. Yeah, good. All right. Okay, you see that marshmallow there, Jude? All right. Well, it's all yours. Okay. You can eat it any time you like. But if you can wait until after I finish the Bible reading, I'll give you another one, and then you'll have two. Understood? But you can eat it any time. All right. Well, we're continuing in our... Uh, sermon series this morning from the book of Revelation, as Rochelle's already mentioned, and uh, this morning we'll be looking at uh, the letter from Jesus Christ to the church at Pergamum, uh, and you can find that in Revelation chapter 2, uh, reading from verse 12. How are you going? Good? All right. So uh, if you've got a Bible or a phone or something like that with you, uh, you could turn there. Actually, you know what I haven't got up here, guys, is a clicker. If there's a clicker sitting down the back, if you can, someone can run it up the front, that would be great, thanks. But while they're doing that, let's read uh, this letter. Jesus says this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith or your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. How'd you go, Jude? Still there? Did you sniff it? Did you touch it? You're, you're pretty amazing. You want another pink one? There you go. How about we give you a couple more, eh? There you go. Well done. You can take that. Yeah. Take the plate if you want. All right, well done. Now, I don't know how many of you know about this. It's pretty well known, I think. But one of the most important uh, studies in the world regarding human health and development has been carried out uh, here in New Zealand in recent decades. 
Uh, it's been centred at the University of Otago, and since 1972, they've been carrying out a very influential study of human development. Uh, and what they did for the study is they selected a thousand people uh, who were babies or in very early childhood, and they uh, decided to start following them through the course of their lives. Uh, they've measured all sorts of outcomes, uh, how they've gone in terms of their career success and all other kinds of factors, trying to look for connections between their development as children and their success as adults, trying to see what are the factors when you are young that lead to success later in life. And uh, as I say, it's been a very influential study, and one of the most significant findings that they've made through the study uh, over the decades has been about the importance of self-control uh, to a good life. And one of the famous experiments that they did with young children at the beginning of this experiment in the 1970s was they did exactly what we just did there with Jude. They would sit young children down and offer them a marshmallow and say, you can have it any time you like. You can eat it now if you want, but if you can wait, you'll get two. And then the experimenter will leave the room and uh, see how they get on. And they found that uh, success in life is strongly correlated with the ability to show that kind of delayed gratification as a child. Uh, it's very important life skill uh, to be able to show discipline in the present uh, in the hope of a future uh, reward. Uh, and so they found that that children who had the ability to hold on for the two marshmallows, they had uh, later in life better relationship histories and better careers. They had less health issues. They suffered less from addictions and so on. So Jude has a very bright future ahead of him, we think. <laughs> and, and this capacity for, for resisting uh, pleasure now for a reward later, that capacity is more important to life outcomes, for instance, than intelligence. So it has a, a big impact on your life. And I, I guess we don't necessarily need an experiment to tell us that this is important. I know that Joe and I as parents, we're constantly trying to impress something like this on our, on our children. Uh, you know, you need to be disciplined now for future reward. Put down that book and practice. Keep at it with the hockey, with the cello, with the typing, with the spelling, whatever it might be. We say just practice, practice, you'll reap the rewards later. And in our culture, we have sayings, don't we, like no pain, no gain, and work first and play later, and so on, because we know that this is true. By the way, uh, if you're the sort of person who enjoys watching adorable children being tortured with marshmallows, there's heaps of material on YouTube. <laughs> but you know, the same principle applies in the Christian life. You know, as a Christian, you may have to exercise discipline now. There may be pain and and suffering that you have to go through now uh, and you may experience inconvenience as a Christian now uh, but the hope that we have as Christians is that if we faithfully stick with Jesus through all of that there is an abundant and an amazing a gracious and a generous reward that waits for us something way more wonderful than a plate of marshmallows and it seems to me that this is uh, one of the main ideas that we see right across these seven letters in Revelation, as I've reflected on these letters, all of them say, you stick with Jesus, you exercise that discipline now, and it will be worth it in the long run. And I can imagine that there are people 
here this morning that might be asking that question that we all ask ourselves sometimes, is it worth it? Uh, if you're a young person here, you might be saying to yourself, if I continue as a Christian, there are a lot of things I'm going to miss out on that maybe I'm, I'm concerned about. Is it worth it to be a Christian? Or you might be here as someone who's not a Christian and you're exploring faith and you know that if you become a Christian, it will require changes from you, maybe sacrifices, you have to give up some stuff and you might be thinking, is it worth it? And the answer that Jesus gives in the seven letters to the churches uh, is absolutely, it will be worth it. If you stick with Jesus now, it will be worth it in the long run. In the case of the church at Pergamum, this uh, concept of uh, discipline now and reward later is expressed in verse 17, where Jesus says this, To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus says, to the one who conquers, I will give a reward. It's language that uh, we see uh, used in all of these seven letters. And so I've drawn up a little table there so that you can, you can see that. That uh, in each case, in every letter, Jesus says, look, if you, if you will conquer, or some of your Bible translations might use the word overcome or prevail, if you conquer, there'll be a reward. If you, if you conquer, you'll eat from the tree of life in paradise. The one who conquers is unharmed by death. The one who conquers will be given authority over the nations. The one who conquers has their name written in the book of life. The one who conquers uh, will be part of God's temple and God's city forever. Uh, the one who conquers will sit on the throne of God. Great uh, promises and rewards that are offered by Jesus to those who conquer or who overcome. It's kind of interesting language, isn't it? It's military kind of language. And uh, it conveys the idea, I suppose, that the Christian life is going to involve some struggling and some wrestling and some battling with stuff. To be a Christian means that you're overcoming or you're conquering or you're, you're battling with things and seeking uh, victory. Now I want to be clear that ultimately what we believe as Christians is that Jesus wins the victory for us. Jesus says, uh, I have overcome the world. The same word. I have conquered the world. Uh, uh, Revelation tells us that it is through the blood of the Lamb that we win a victory, a conquest over Satan. So we look for a victory in Jesus first of all, but if we're following Jesus, we're going to know that we've been in a fight. We're also going to have to struggle and wrestle, and Revelation also talks about those who conquer through the faithful word of their testimony. Jesus wins the victory, but we are part of the army, I guess. Uh, and to be a Christian means that we are in a battle. But for those who can show discipline uh, and uh, restraint and uh, perseverance, 
in the present there is a great reward. Now, the rewards that are offered to the church in Pergamum are, in my opinion, by some distance, the weirdest and the most difficult to understand. Right? You'll get some hidden manna and a white stone. So let me try and make some suggestions about what is being discussed here. Jesus says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Uh, perhaps if you're not familiar with church, that could be slightly confusing. In New Zealand, we talk about mana as a concept in Te Ao Māori. But mana is actually something that comes from a story in the Old Testament. The people of God, the Israelites, were in the wilderness. They were in the desert. They had nothing to eat. And for a long time, uh, we read that God miraculously sustained them with food that was provided day by day uh, called manna. And its name simply reflected the mystery of what it was. What is it? But God sustained uh, his people in the wilderness over a period of time with this food. And in Exodus chapter 16, you read that God tells Moses to go out and collect some of this manna and put it in a jar. And then the jar was put into the Ark of the Covenant. And it was to be kept through all generations as a memorial for that provision that God was making. So I think it's quite probable that when... Revelation talks about the hidden manna. It's referring to this episode and this manna that had been stored away by Moses. And I think perhaps we should understand uh, that Jesus is promising, just as the Israelites were sustained and nourished by God through that wilderness time, Jesus is taking out that manna and he will be providing for his people, nourishing them, giving them life. There was once a time when Jesus was challenged by his uh, opponents. And they said to him, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Are you going to do something similar to prove that you're from God? And in response, Jesus famously said, I am the bread of life. The one who conquers and who sticks faithfully with Jesus receives life and nourishment from him. Jesus says to the one who conquers, I'll give a white stone with a new name. Now there's been a lot of speculation about this one amongst Bible scholars because uh, there's no clear Old Testament reference for this symbol. And as an aside, I would recommend to you if you are trying to understand revelation the first place you turn to understand the symbolism there is the old testament and very often when you read the old testament you will find keys that unlock the meaning of revelation but in this particular case people can't really find anything in the old testament that refers to something like this stone and so uh, scholars have have searched around for some kind of interpretation and one idea for instance is that sometimes in in classical times in bible times uh, people would give out inscribed stones uh, as a party invitation. So you'd receive a stone and it invited you to a, to a feast or something like that. And so maybe we should understand that this is an invitation to, to a feast or to a party. There are things we don't really know about the stone, but there are some things we can say confidently. And one of those is that the stone is white and that does have a reasonably clear meaning. You see, uh, white is an important color, we might say, in Revelation. The word is important. 
And in fact, a quarter of all the mentions of white in the Bible are found in the book of Revelation. And generally, uh, when we read about something that's white, we have white clothes, white, a white throne, white horses and so on. Generally, uh, the whiteness refers to its moral purity, to the fact that it's, that it's clean, that it's unblemished by sin. Uh, and more specifically, some of the time, it refers to the purity that we have through the forgiveness we find in Jesus. So, for instance, in chapter 7, we read about those who have washed their, their clothes white in the blood of the Lamb. So to be white is to be forgiven and to be pure and to uh, have your life transformed and to be accepted uh, by God. Now, we could continue uh, with uh, erudite speculation, but at one level, the specifics of the manna and the stone don't matter too much as long as you understand this is part of a wider call from Jesus <clears throat> that he makes to all of the seven churches that if you stick faithfully with me, you will be saved. You won't just receive a plate of marshmallows. An unimaginably rich life is there for those who conquer. Now, the promise is general to all the seven churches and indeed it's it's, gen it's offered to us also. Uh, but each church in Revelation faced its own specific challenges. Some of the churches were rich and complacent. Some of them were poor and hard-pressed and some had internal problems and so on. And at Pergamum, one way to frame this would be to say that the, the challenge that they faced in their city related to the, to the surrounding culture of that place. So the Christians there, they needed to stick with Jesus uh, even though their culture or their environment uh, wanted them to give up on faith. Oh, I'm a little behind. The folk at Pergamum lived in a culture that was opposed to the purposes of God. At the beginning of the letter, we find quite a striking statement that I imagine you probably uh, made you ra raise your eyebrows as you read it. When Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. It's quite a statement, isn't it? Quite an opening. And Jesus says to these guys, your permanent residence, the place where you live, uh, that's where... That's the same place where the father of lies and, and the roaring, devouring lion and that ancient serpent, that's where he runs his government from. It's quite intense. I've heard about neighbors from hell, but he's taken it to the next level. And you might think, wow, what a thing to say. Satan's capital city is where you live. But when you consider uh, a little of what Pergamum was like, you can understand why Jesus might refer to the city in this way. If you go to Berlin uh, today to the Pergamum Museum, you can visit the Pergamum altar. Uh, and I guess this is what Pergamum is most famous for these days. And it's an amazing uh, relic from the ancient world. I should clarify, perhaps, it used to be in Pergamum and it was shifted to Berlin uh, as people used to do in those times a couple of hundred years ago. 
But you can go in there now and visit the Pergamum altar, which was once in Pergamum in Bible times. And you can already see just from that photo there, it's massive. But if you were there uh, in Pergamum at the time, you would have walked into this courtyard <coughs> at the base of this altar, and com you're completely surrounded by these massive sculptures of the Olympian gods uh, battling with the Titans uh, in full color. Uh, it will be quite a show. And then you come to this 20-meter-wide uh, set of steps. You go up the steps to the Temple of Zeus at the top uh, where you would make sacrifice uh, to him as the chief of the gods. And that's an indication of the kind of city that this was. There were other important temples there. It was a big city. Uh, so temples to uh, Dionysius and Athena and Asclepius. And Asclepius was the Greek god of healing, so people would come from all over the Mediterranean to try and seek healing at Pergamum. And maybe even more important than all of that, uh, Pergamum was a provincial capital in what we now call Turkey. And so people would come from around that area in order to practice emperor worship. If you were a Roman citizen, you were required to go once a year to a place like Pergamum and burn incense and declare that Jesus, uh, not Jesus, Caesar, Caesar is Lord, not Jesus. But of course, Christians couldn't make that confession. And so it was difficult if you lived in Pergamum to participate fully in civic and political life. So you might belong to a trade organization, for instance, uh, but those guilds would often hold their meetings in a temple. They would worship their patron god. You know, if you were a doctor, perhaps you, it would be difficult to avoid meetings where Asclepius was worshipped and honored. And so you can see that there'd be a massive tension if you lived in this city between your Christian faith and the culture that was around you. And when Jesus says, you live where Satan has his throne, he's saying the religion and the lifestyle and the institutions and the government of that place were in rebellion against the rule of God. And it was going to be difficult to fit in as Christians. So if you've ever felt a tension uh, between your Christian faith and the culture of your workplace or your school or university or the flat where you live uh, or your neighborhood, uh, if you've ever felt that tension, then you might understand a bit of what it might have felt like to live in Pergamum. Now when, when as a Christian you face this big tension between your faith and the culture, that, you can, that, that puts pressure on you. Uh, and you might experience that pressure uh, in a couple of different ways. Firstly, you can experience your culture as something that's hostile to you and that puts a negative pressure on you. Our culture can be a source of anger and insults and threats and contempt and mockery and so on. And indeed, the Christians at Pergamum, they experienced their culture in this way. They underwent severe persecution for what they believed. Uh, in fact, from what Jesus tells us in this letter, we know at least one person has died. Antipas, uh, the faithful witness who was killed among them, says in verse 13. Uh, and Jesus commends uh, the, the folk in this city 
Because in spite of those serious threats to life, uh, as it says in verse 13, you did not deny your faith in me. <clears throat> so one way that a Christian can experience the, that pressure from culture is as that kind of negative uh, impetus to deny the faith. And I don't know if you've experienced that temptation, but I certainly know that feeling of thinking, well, I'd rather just hide my Bible away or, uh, you know, play down my participation in church when I'm talking to others or push that Christian T-shirt right to the back of the drawer and never pull it out. Uh, and we can be tempted maybe in certain situations even to deny the faith, and we know that even Peter the Apostle faced that temptation. Uh, and the Bible is very clear uh, in multiple locations that actually there's a bright, clear red line around that, that Christians are not to deny uh, their faith. Uh, and we see here that Jesus commends them because even though they faced this real hostility from their culture, they did not deny. Anyway, uh, Bradley talked a bit about persecution and so on last week, so I'm not going to dwell on that point. I want to talk a little bit more about another way that a culture can put pressure on us as Christians. Uh, so a different way that you can experience that tension between faith and culture is in a positive way. You can be attracted to the culture, and of course there are many good things to celebrate in, in culture, human culture. But you can be tempted in such a way that it draws you away from faith and into compromise. And uh, at the church in Pergamum, they faced direct hostility but there was also this kind of temptation to join in and to compromise faith. There were a lot of uh, great things you could do in Pergamum, I'm sure, if you lived there. It was a place with a vibrant intellectual life. Apparently it had the second greatest library of the ancient world, a very famous library with 200,000 books. And Pergamum actually was the place where parchment was invented which is the writing medium which supplanted papyrus and became a dominant way that people wrote stuff. So the name Pergamum, or rather the name Parchment, apparently means from Pergamum. And uh, as we saw before, it was a place of great art and it had a lot of fun religious events, as you can imagine. So Dionysius, for instance, the god of wine, was one of the main gods of the city and in springtime they had a three-day festival for him that involved drunkenness and processions and plays and, and parties. And festivities at these pagan temples often involved sex with prostitutes and so on. So if you were someone who was living in that environment, I guess there were plenty of temptations for free food and drink and woman and things like social acceptability and status and fitting in. And it looks like some of the people in the church in Pergamon were advocating just kind of uh, accommodating to the culture that was around them. Uh, we read in verse 14, Jesus says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Now again, this is a reference to the Old Testament. It might not make a lot of sense to you unless you go back and read 
through uh, the story of Balaam in the book of Numbers. That's where you find it. But there you read about this guy Balaam. And he's a curious kind of a character. And he, he lives in a pagan environment. In some ways we might say he was like a shaman or a witch doctor, that kind of a character. But he seems to have had also a real connection with God. And he heard from God and uh, spoke to God. And uh, as the Israelites were approaching the promised land, Balak was the Moabite king. So he was a king in those places and he was worried about the threat of the Israelites to his power and to his people. And he wanted to hire Balaam to pronounce curses on the Israelites. And uh, it's quite a long story, but uh, Balaam was prevented by God from pronouncing those curses. Uh, nevertheless, uh, Balaam achieved a similar result of compromising and bringing down the Israelites through more devious means. Uh, by sending out Moabite women to seduce the Israelites, invite them to their pagan uh, festivities, and so on. And so when Jesus says some are holding to the teaching of Balaam, that indicates that something similar is happening at the church in Pergamum. The temptations of that city and its religious festivals is leading some to participate in idolatry and immorality. That's what Jesus says. And so Satan, who has his throne there, he's failed to destroy the church through direct hostility, but instead he's using more subtle tactics. If you can't do it with a stick, then you dangle a carrot, don't you? And that seems to be the case in Pergamum. In verse 15, uh, Jesus mentions the Nicolaitans, and that might just be another name for the same group of people. Uh, the name Nicolaus comes from Greek, and the name Balaam is Hebrew or Aramaic, so different languages, but the root meaning of the two names is quite similar. So there might just be two different ways of referring to the same group of people, people who are advocating, accommodating to the local culture and, and joining in with what's going on and compromising their faith. I'm sure we can also identify with this kind of a pressure and temptation from culture, right? Because we live in an amazing culture. So technically advanced, so sophisticated. And uh, there are many beautiful and clever and attractive ways, actually, that culture can lure us away from faithfulness and into compromise. And, of course, there's the obvious ugly stuff. I don't think you need me to tell you that pee addiction and gang violence and internet porn and all of these things are, are going to lead you into compromise of your faith. But actually, the beautiful things of our culture can also lead us uh, away from faithfulness to Jesus. Right? There's, some, there's some great stuff there, and, and we can be tempted to, to take the marshmallow. Let me talk about some of the things that I deal with, I suppose, personally. Look, there's a multitude of temptations out there to compromise, aren't there? But here's some of the things that I have to grapple with myself. Uh, I think a lot of you know that music's a big part of my life. And uh, music's a, a wonderful gift of God and uh, is an amazing, you know, I enjoyed the music this morning. It's good to sing to God. It's great. But we know that it's, it's a good aspect of our culture that can lead us into compromise. I've met plenty of young guys who had a thirst for glamour and glory and girls, and that's what being a musician was all about, right? Uh, and it can lead you astray. Here, here's uh, this is a picture of Keb Mo, 
who's probably too old school for most people here who listen to music, I don't know. But anyway, I like his music. And there's one song that he sings that's called uh, More Than One Way Home. And I remember from the very first time I heard that song on the radio, I absolutely fell in love with it. Might not be your cup of tea, but I really liked it. Musically, it just really worked for me. I just, it really emotionally resonated with me. The lyrics just were so warm and persuasive and beautiful. I really liked it as a song. But it actually has a very, uh, a, a message that's very opposed to Christian faith. You know, it doesn't matter which direction you walk, what God you follow, there's more than one way home. And there are more obvious examples, but that's one subtle way in which music might lead me to celebrate something that actually I don't want to celebrate and uh, lead me into compromise in my faith. So I have to watch what I'm listening to. I don't want to be legalistic about it, but it can be something that leads us into compromise. How about sport? I mean, sport is awesome. I like sport. Uh, Theo and I have been watching the Men's Hockey World Cup uh, over the last couple of weeks. That's the New Zealand team. Uh, I've done a lot of coaching in recent years. I enjoy sport, and it's good. It's healthy. It's, um, you know, it's a good way to socialize and so on. But again, there are a lot of ways in which sport could potentially lead us into compromise, even though it's a good gift of God. You know, I've seen massive pressure come on young people from that clubhouse culture, you know, of drinking and banter and so on, and people being pushed to uh, step away from their Christian faith. Uh, I, I see that there's a temptation there for a lot of us to miss church, to make this community here a secondary priority because we want to be playing sport. And uh, so there's temptations there to compromise our faith. I've already probably betrayed the fact that I've done a lot of traveling. And again, travel is something that we experience as modern people, which is amazing, and uh, which can be really good. It's so educational. I've learned heaps from traveling to different places. But again, you know, when does it stop being something that's that's um, a good gift of God and a benefit to your life and something to be enjoyed. And when does it become addiction to novelty and, and newness and uh, something that draws you away from a productive life, a way to escape accountability maybe with your family, with others, and so on. So look, those are just some personal examples of stuff that happens in my life, but you can think of your own. We can all be tempted into compromise by the good things and the attractive things in our culture. One of the things I find interesting in uh, this passage is that Jesus doesn't just say you've actually been going the way of Balaam. He says there are some there holding to the teaching of Balaam. And what that says to me is something about the way that we can rationalize pretty much anything, right? There are people there who are teaching it's okay to uh, sacrifice to idols and to participate in that sexual immorality. And uh, if there's something there that you're tempted to do that will be a compromise for you, you can probably find someone somewhere who will tell you it's fine. But you probably don't even need that, right? Because we're experts at rationalizing our own behavior. And uh, you can probably find a reason to do the thing that you really want to do. But at the same time, I know from my own experience, I expect it's probably true for you. If it's leading you into compromising your faith and you feel as though it's drawing you away from faithfulness to Jesus, you probably know that in your heart of hearts. 
you probably can recognize that. And if something is a cause of compromise for you and you know it, Jesus has uh, a simple uh, command in verse 16. He says, therefore, repent. You know, if you've got a, something, some practice, some habit in your life that's leading you into compromise, Jesus says you've got to change your mindset. You've got to change your life and make some concrete adjustments. Keep God central. Keep your faith distinctive. And uh, if you don't want that habit or that practice to bring you down, you've got to overcome. You've got to conquer. Jesus says, don't take the marshmallow. You know, there are a lot of temptations out there for compromise. But if you're faithful or you stick with Jesus, the reward for those who overcome will be awesome.